Welcome to A Life Lived Backwards, One Man's Life, the accompanying podcast to Larry Ruttman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. Hi there, I'm Jordan Rich with a pretty easy task and a fun one at that. I pose questions to Larry and with that razor sharp memory of his and a great talent for storytelling, well, you just have to settle back and enjoy the ride. I'll tell you, Larry, talking with you about the school years is so interesting because, first of all, you remember so much and you paint this picture, as people now know on the podcast, you paint this picture with words. So I would love to get more from you on your law school years because that's another element of education. Let's start with Columbia, which is a very prestigious school, and uh, you've got some names and places you wanted to bring up. What's Morningside Park for those listening? Uh, yeah, well, I started out at Columbia and uh, finished up at Boston College Law School. I sort of ran out of funds. In Boston College, I could live at home, and it was a lot easier to do. But Columbia, yeah, is a prestigious law school, and um, uh, I had some interesting times there. Morningside Park is the uh, park that uh, separates the heights on the west side of Manhattan, where Columbia is, uh, from the what is below the park, which is actually Harlem. Mm-hmm. So anyway, in my first couple of weeks at, uh, at Columbia, um, I was getting myself acquainted with New York, which was, of course, a very interesting thing to do because New York can be very fascinating. So, uh, but I had yet to master the underground system. Right. So a lot of trains go through Times Square, and if you take the right one, you wind up at Columbia, and if you take the wrong one, you wind up in Harlem. <laughs> and I, I took the wrong one uh-huh. back from, and I wound up, and I come up and I said, well, where am I? It's Harlem. And um, so I had two choices at that time. And in my brilliance, I chose the wrong one. I, I chose to walk uh, east to west through Harlem to Morningside Park and scale Morningside Park, which is on an incline, not particularly wide, but uh, but dark, dangerous, and precipitous. So about how many blocks would that be? Cause I... that, was, that probably would be about 20 blocks. So anyway, I set mm-hmm. out walking toward Morningside Park instead mm-hmm. of getting on the train. And I soon noticed that there wasn't another white person there. And a lot of people, it was a warm time in September, <laughs> I guess, and a lot of people were sitting out. And I'm walking along, you know, waving at the people and saying hello. But after a while, I began to say, you know, at this time, there wasn't quite as much violence going on. But still, um, it was an environment that uh, that it wasn't an animus toward black people. It's just the feeling that anything could happen in a situation like that if the Mm -hmm. wrong person should. Yeah, in those days, the crime rate was a lot higher in that area. Harlem is so different now. It's it's a mixed, almost a mixed neighborhood. But so you did that. That was... uh, So I walked walked all the way to Morningside Park. Then when I got to Morningside Park, I looked up and I said, my, it was dark. So uh, what I did was I, at that point, nothing happened on the walk. So I decided I'd scale Morningside Park, and I went in there, and it was dark, and the shrubbery was close. And I th- then I was really fearful. I said, what, is somebody behind that tree? Somebody's going to jump out and rob me or worse or kill me or something like that? And it's, and I'm trying to, and I'm walking. It's like, oh, not a 45-degree angle, but maybe hmm. 30 or 35. And I'm climbing up. And um, finally, after a while, I broke through. And it's the first thing, when you get to the top, you're, you're on the campus. You're on the uh, east side of the campus. 
and the dormitory was on the other side. So I walked across, and my roommate at that time was a fellow by the name of Phil Temple, who had recently changed his name from Phil Teitelbaum. Uh, and uh, Phil was a terrific guy, a very bright guy, whose interest really was the theater. But pressure, because he was getting married after law school, was to become a lawyer rather than somebody in the theater. And Phil was a very thin guy with a crew cut and a high-pitched voice. And we were rooming together. And, you know, and he loved baseball. And we got along very well. So I walked across to the dormitory, went up to the room, and Phil was in there with a bunch of other guys. And so, where you been, Larry? I said, and I told them the story. And they said, what? You're crazy. You could be dead. <laughs> Why did you do that? Why didn't you just turn around and go back to Times Square and take the next train? I said, I don't know. And so you're a lucky guy to be here. Uh, Phil himself became a, a very good friend. Uh, he was a very bright guy in the estates field, became well-known in charitable giving, uh, practiced in a top New York law firm, got married to that lady, had a couple of kids, they got divorced. Lois and I met him one weekend uh, in New York, maybe 15, well, about the time I was writing American Jews and America's Game, on the very same day that later in the day I interviewed Marvin Miller oh, yes. in his home. And that that resulted in a great friendship with a yeah. great man. Yeah. And Phil at that time was going with some lady who abandoned him. <laughs> I don't know what happened when he became really sick. He died a few years later. But he would he would advise me. He sent me a few cases. He would advise me on estate problems because he was a master of that. At that dinner, he this is one of those people, some people you recognize, you know, even if you haven't seen them since they were 18. He, instead of being, as I just described him, uh, had become portly mm. with a mustache, naturally a terrific suit. The only thing that was recognizable, I'd never know him, was that high-pitched voice. Ah. And, uh, yeah. and the fact that he was... Well, 40, this, 40 years can make a difference in some cases. Same beneficent personality, very nice. Did he ever do any acting, even on the side? Uh, no, I think he probably went to the theater a lot, but he never... You know, he probably would have been much happier if it became, yeah. but he wouldn't have made uh, money like that. But he was he was a very nice person, and uh, so, and then he told me that he never had experienced the feelings he had when he became sick, and uh, ultimately, it, it did him mm, in. That's a shame. Who's uh, Paolo Fulci? Did I say that correctly? Yeah, you did. And Paolo is a great man. Paolo Francesco Fulci. Fulci. Mm -hmm. He was on a Fulbright at, at uh, Columbia when I uh -huh. met him. And when I met him, he could hardly speak English. A week later, he spoke practically perfect English. He became Premier Fanfani's private secretary. He was a member. He went into the Italian State Department. He came from an old landed family in Sicily. And as I put it in my book, you're not in good shape if you got a Sicilian for an enemy but they make good friends. <laughs> <laughs> and somehow he picked me out to be his friend. Yeah. And uh, he and I are friends to this day. So he became a storied diplomat in the Italian State Department who would do things that astounded everybody. I mean, some guys were supposed to be doing bad things at 
at not the embassy, but at a what do they call consulate? Consulate. Yeah. So he he dressed up with a disguise, make believe he was somebody else, like an immigrant. He was in a foreign country and went there to find out what was going on and played the part. Oh, that's and they brilliant. gave themselves away. And and they were yeah. ultimately fired from the State Department. And Paolo naturally became famous not only for what he did otherwise but for that story. Anyway, he became – he was the ambassador in several places of increasing importance. Mm-hmm. Finally, he was the – not finally, but he became the ambassador to Canada. And he invited us up one time to stay in the consulate in Hull, which is right outside of Ottawa. And it was there that – I think Lois and I both bought fur coats when fur coats were acceptable. And Paolo, by that, by then, he came some years previously with a beautiful Italian lady who had, was really, had connections. And she wasn't royalty, but she was nobility and really nice looking. And Lois and I said, boy, Paolo should marry her. She's really great for a diplomat and she's really nice. He didn't, but he married a Peruvian lady by the name of, uh, uh, and uh, it'll come to me, she was beautiful and lovely and nice. And uh, so they had three children. So, uh, and she was up there in Canada with him. And uh, he had to meet a famous atomic scientist at that time. So we drove in the limousine to Montreal where he had to pick up that guy. And he left us there and we looked around Montreal and so forth and so on. But later, when he was the ambassador to the United Nations, it, Italy, and he, on a rotating basis, become the pre, became the president of the Security Council. You can look him up on Wikipedia. Um, he, he, uh, uh, he, he wanted to come and see Cape Cod. Why? Because uh, the, uh, the Italian Marconi from Wellfleet. Oh, of course. I, I'm being radio. I know all about this. He's he's famous for having uh, done the radio thing on Cape Cod. That's right. And, and Wellfleet. And there's a museum in his name and everything. Yeah, you're right. So that um, wow. Paolo cool. wanted to see that because there's a lot of Italians uh, living in uh, uh, Canada, and he wanted to raise money for the memory of Guglielmo Marconi, who was such a big deal in the broadcasting field. Yeah, there's a big connection for you here. So we went out there and he took pictures and so forth. On the way down, we stopped at a Salamaria in the North End where he and uh, his wife, because they wanted to make an Italian meal, every time we visited him, there were people wherever he was the embassy in New York or the embassy up in Canada, guys in white gloves would serve oh, us. Oh, yeah. And it was, you know, so they never had to lift a hand. So they bought all this stuff. We went down to the Cape, and he and she made oh, an Italian meal lasagna for us. That it was amazing. And served it, yeah, and served it to us. <laughs> and uh, so that Paolo, uh, and not only that, when in 1966, I guess it was, when Lois and I were traveling in Europe a few years after we got married, he wasn't in Rome at the time, but he said, well, use my apartment and my car and go to the State Department um, where, you know, he was, of course, mm-hmm. a member uh, to the club. So he, he gave us his apartment, he gave us his car, went out to the State Department, and some guy that was one of the most handsome guys you ever saw took a liking to Lois, naturally. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> International intrigue. And I said to myself, I'm going to watch this guy. Yeah. And um, 
So we had what an interesting guy to meet up in law school and and have a lifelong friendship. Yeah, well, he, be, he somehow he picked me out to be his friend. I really couldn't tell you why, but uh, so um, and, and then when he became in New York, when he was the head of the uh, uh, when he became the head of the Security Council, we met there, and he just always treated us uh, very well. And uh, but but it's it, it's really cool to be a the friend of somebody in the uh, in the ambassador rank because they they have an interesting lifestyle, a lot of people doing a lot of things for you. <laughs> oh, absolutely! I've yeah. had a friend who's uh, a friend of a friend who's an, an ambassador's wife, and uh, it's quite quite a lifestyle. Yeah, and you have to be a diplomat. You know how to be a diplomat. I an amateur diplomat, but yes, <laughs> it it takes a lot of skill. Well, I'll tell you what. I think we should. Uh, separate the two law school experiences because you've got a whole bunch of stories about BC law school, a little closer to home. Did you finally get to learn the subway system in New York? Oh, yeah, because there was a great place to get hot dogs at 114th <laughs> <laughs> There's the Larry we know and love. Thank you, my friend. Always a pleasure. My, my pleasure. Mon plaisir, as the French say. This has been a life lived backwards, one man's life. The accompanying podcast to Larry Ruttman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. You can subscribe and download this podcast, available on all podcast platforms. For information on Larry, his books, lectures, and much more, visit the website LarryRuttman.com. Also check out the extensive Larry Ruttman page on Wikipedia. This is Jordan Rich inviting you to join us again next time as Larry shares more stories about friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation on a life lived backwards, one man's life.